Hello and welcome to The Transfer Window, the podcast that brings you the news before it becomes news. I'm Ian McGarry and with me as always is Duncan Castles. We'll also be bringing you insight and analysis on all the subjects affecting you, the things you're talking about in the game, because of course today is your questions answered on the transfer window. But of course, as first, we have to give you the latest news on what's happening in the transfer window in Europe, uh, which doesn't close until September 2nd. Duncan, I'm being told that Christian Eriksen is still very much a live target for both Real Madrid and Juventus. This has led to a, I think, which will become a very, very acrimonious situation between Maurizio Pochettino and Chairman Daniel Levy, should Eriksen be allowed to leave. Pochettino, as we have noted, has said it's a massive mistake for the Premier League to allow the transfer to close in England before it does in their neighbouring countries of Europe. And Levy, I understand, has given no guarantee to Pochettino that Ericsson will not be sold in this current window because if the um, 80 million euro valuation, which Levy has put upon the Danish international, is reached, then he would rather take the money now than lose him for free next summer. Ericsson himself is causing a bit of a hold-up here uh, because he prefers Spain, he prefers Real Madrid, but of course is waiting to find out if Real Madrid make that bid that we expect for Paul Pogba at some point during the next couple of weeks. But he prefers to go to Spain in La Liga. However, Juventus have been in touch with his representatives, um, but their signing off him would depend on, as we noted in Monday's podcast, Paolo Dybala moving to Paris Saint-Germain, therefore freeing up not just a space in the team, but also in the um, wages uh, structure at uh, Juventus. So Ericsson stuck in a bit of limbo here, Duncan. Um, you have uh, been watching Pochettino's body language and the phrases he's used. What's the possible um, damage this could cause if indeed Ericsson is sold and allowed to leave Tottenham in this window? Well, I think it's interesting that Pochettino has chosen to repeatedly complain about the window and he's, he's structuring his complaint in a way that he's putting the blame on the Premier League as a whole voting for this um, handicap that they placed upon themselves and which is causing problems not just for Pochettino but for Uli Gunnar Solskjaer um, as he waits to see what happens with Paul Pogba and what, uh, what the players' response will be. Um, when that bid comes in from Real Madrid and uh, when, as we expect to happen, Manchester United reject it. So you can see Pochettino's concern there and his anger with the system um, and, uh, and, as I say, repeatedly complaining uh, that, it, that it's a big issue for him. Um, you know, we've talked on several podcasts about the situation that Tottenham have got themselves into here in that Pochettino's plan for the window was get two top-class central midfielders in uh, to play in front of Harry Winks as the number six, uh, at number 10 in, which they have achieved, and Giovanni Lo Celso also wanted a new uh, forward, which they didn't achieve. Um, obviously, there was the attempt for Dybala, which foundered when... Um, 
uh, Tottenham had <laughs> came to terms with the wages that uh, Dybala was always going to ask to move there. Um, Bruno Fernandes was the second uh, central midfielder that Tottenham tried very hard uh, to get in. Um, travelled to Lisbon to discuss and, and make various proposals to Sporting for their player. Um, the blame there, I don't think, is on Daniel Levy. As we as we detailed in the podcast, the, the issue was that Bruno Fernandes' agent, his brother-in-law, Miguel Pino, had told Tottenham that it would cost 40 to 45 million euros to get Fernandes out of Sporting, when the real effective uh, price uh, was 80 million euros, albeit with some of that in bonuses, and Tottenham weren't prepared to go there. However, you are left this, with a situation in which Pochettino clearly wants to retain Ericsson because he didn't get Fernandez in. Um, he feels that to have the best chance of success in the Premier League, and now there's a much greater expectation on him to succeed in the Premier League, given that they reached the Champions League final before um, these additions, these record signings in the summer uh, last season. Um, he needs to retain the squad as it stands, um, telling that he used Danny Rose against Manchester City at the weekend, another player that has been placed on the market and who Levy uh, would sell if he gets the right money for him, and used Ericsson. Um, and, you know, it's it's not just Levy here. It's also Ericsson, as you detail, who wants to go. Um, so you have... You, know, you have a situation where Ericsson and Levy are waiting to see what the offers are for the player from foreign leagues. Um, as you detail, Ericsson's preference is to go to Madrid. Um, Pochettino has a bit of insurance there in that uh, Zinedine Zidane would prefer to sign Pogba and Florentino Perez would prefer to sign Neymar. Um, will either of those transfers go through? It doesn't look particularly likely at present that Madrid will get those players. Therefore, Ericsson comes back into the picture. If Madrid make an offer that meets Levy's terms, I would expect Daniel Levy to take it. Um, it has always been his approach that players have a valuation. Um, you look at the long-term uh, best interests of the club, and in the long-term best interests, it would be better to take uh, 80 million pounds that he wants or close to the 80 million pounds that he wants for Ericsson this summer rather than lose the player for nothing next summer and that 80 million will be reinvested into the team going forward. He's worked that way for um, years and years and years. I don't see that changing now. You could argue that um, by allowing Ericsson to leave he puts their Champions League qualification in threat which would cost uh, Tottenham significant money down the line but even that argument I think is quite a hard one to make given that most analysts would say that Tottenham are the third strongest squad in the Premier League as things stand um, they finished uh, comfortably in Champions League qualification last season albeit they, they managed to take it down uh, later in the season than it should have done by a, a, a very bad finish to it um, they reached the Champions League final. So even without Ericsson, with the improvements they've made in the summer, you would 
think that they should easily be able to qualify for Champions League football again. Therefore, Levy's calculation will be, I can afford to let that player go. Um, I take the money now. We reinvest that money down the line. Long-term interests of the club are to sell the player. And remember, he'll be making this calculation against Pochettino's wishes, but also considering that Pochettino has come very close to leaving the club um, in the last two summers and, uh, and cannot be guaranteed that Pochettino will not take the option to leave the club in a, in a year's time should that, uh, should that uh, offer come to him again. So uh, Levy's calculation will be different from Maurizio Pochettino's calculation because Levy's self-interest doesn't um, entirely align with his coach's self-interest and that's, that's the nature of most football clubs most of the time. Well, we should also um, let you guys know as well that the conversations amongst agents and football administrators in the European market is that very much Juventus and Real Madrid, despite having invested a lot of money already in new signings, have not done all of their business yet. And each club is looking for at least one more major signing in this window to complete their squad uh, for next, well, for this season, which has just begun. So uh, we will keep you updated. Of course we will. We're going to move on to Chelsea now and a couple of little snapshots of what's going on there. Um, David Zappacosta, the um, def Italian defender who was signed by Antonio Conte, um, is in Rome right now having a medical uh, with regard to a one-season loan and uh, option to buy for Roma. Uh, that would be no surprise. He's not featured very much under Frank Lampard since um, the Chelsea legend came in as head coach. And uh, clearly he's seen a supposed to requirements. Um, uh, he's not played at left-back at all. In fact, I think he's had 45 minutes in pre-season. Duncan, you've got some information on Timo Bakayoko as well, haven't you? Yes, um, I think there's a, a decision to be made by Chelsea here on, on Bakayoko, who um, again has failed to convince Lampard during pre-season, had uh, been given the opportunity to, to play for him and, and establish his credentials. But uh, you can see from the selections he's made so far that Bakayoko's um, down the pecking order. He's a valuable player. Um, he, he has a market outside England um, based principally on how he performed at Monaco um, during their uh, championship season. But there are clubs who want to take him um, and there will definitely be an option um, for Chelsea to allow the player to go on loan, take a significant loan fee for him, take the wages off their um, balance sheet and um, include an option to buy going forward. They might be able to sell the player too um, if they uh, negotiate well and on that. Uh, earlier in the summer, I know um, at least one a French club made an inquiry to Chelsea about taking the player this season and were told by Marina Granovskaya that he was not for sale and not available and would be part of Chelsea's um, squad this year. However, that was prior to Frank Lampard working with the player. Um, so now uh, it's going to be interesting to see if that landscape has changed sufficiently for Chelsea to say, OK, even though we had a transfer ban um, and we weren't able to recruit apart from 
making Kovacic's um, loan deal into a full registration. Um, we will allow Bakayoko as well to leave the club because um, the manager has decided he's not, uh, not required even as a backup for this season. Well, we're going to move on now to your questions answered because that's what Wednesday's podcast is mainly about. And um, we're going to start off with uh, one from a very good friend of the podcast, Brett Ramirez, who um, has an intriguing one, Duncan, for us. Um, I think one which a lot of the listeners will be interested in because of the kind of gossipy aspects of things around boot deals and personal sponsorship, et cetera, et cetera. And Brett asks... Do sponsors play any part or have any material influence over a club's transfer business? With a poor transfer window by United and hashtag Glazers out trending, Adidas, etc., pumping millions in per year seems unjustified. Is that the case, Duncan, or do you think that sponsors don't really care as long as the club's making money? I don't, I don't think uh, Manchester United results um, show that Adidas is... Uh, sponsorship deal of the club is unjustified. I think um, I think they more than make their money back in terms of sharp sales. Um, obviously, if the performance on the field isn't as good as you'd expect it to be, those sharp sales will drop off to a certain extent. But um, I don't think it's got anywhere near that level um, for Adidas yet. They do have um, this option in the contract that if United fail to qualify for the Champions League again this season, then they will have to pay less money to Manchester United for that sponsorship deal um, for the for the coming season. So they've got a bit of an insurance built in there. But um, you've seen uh, the value of these um, sharp sponsorship, um, sharp manufacturing deals increase, increase, increase down the line. And Manchester United's one is quite a established deal now. And I think if they were to go on the open market, they could expect to increase that um, simply because of the size of their support, which um, which is nowhere near as large as they claim it to be. There's some, uh, some interesting uh, statistics put out by uh, the club um, last week, I believe, claiming that they had, I think the number was 1.1 billion supporters worldwide, um, which effectively was claiming that one in every seven people on the planet support Manchester United and um, while they are a very well supported club and very popular worldwide I think that is a something of an exaggeration and uh, one that was that's obviously presented with an ulterior motive of uh, marketing the club and uh, in- increasing sponsorship values and um, trying to uh, make people believe that a-, a sponsorship of the club is is more potentially more valuable than it is. In terms of how sponsors can get involved in deals. I think this is definitely a factor, and I think Manchester United are a good example here. Um, We know that Manchester United have bought players uh, for several years now, um, taking into account their international profile as individuals, taking into account their social media reach, um, and taking that into account because they feel they can leverage these things uh, to be more successful in their commercial marketing of the club in general. So they're very conscious of that. Um, And I think Paul Pogba here is also a good example in that when Paul Pogba's deal was done, um, it was clear to the people following that transfer that an agreement had been made 
between the player and the club several weeks before the, the deal was formally announced. And also that there was a club-to-club deal, um, Juventus and Manchester United, in place for several weeks before it was formally announced. What we got was a summer of Paul Pogba being on the back pages of newspapers, being on television screens almost on a daily basis, and discussion of his transfer almost on a daily basis. Um, obviously, with his personal sponsorship with Adidas, um, Adidas were part of that um, media exposure in that they received exposure um, with images of Pogba in, a, in an Adidas, in Adidas um, kit, etc. You also, I think, if you go back and look at that, you'll see that Adidas themselves um, ran a marketing campaign on social media during this transfer discussion uh, about Pogba, and they kind of teased it themselves going forward. So I think that delay with Manchester United announcing um, Paul Pogba's transfer was very much aligned with the commercial interests of a principal sponsor of both the club and the player. Um, so there you have a potential way in which uh, the identity of a sponsor can affect, directly affect what happens in the transfer market. Well, it's undoubtedly the case, Duncan, and you and I know over the years that sponsors, club sponsors, have a huge um, influence in terms of the media exposure um, that the team and stroke players have. Um, they are able to offer interviews to the media uh, in order to promote, uh, whether it's a kit launch or anything at all, basically related to them, <clears throat> because they can call upon top players at that club to promote them that product etc uh, with the carrot of an interview I remember once um, turning up to interview Michael Balak an Adidas event when he was at Chelsea and um, Balak took umbrage at the fact that I criticised his performances and declared to the sponsor's representative that he didn't want to speak to me um, only for me to take it into my own hands and say well why don't we, you and I have this out uh, somewhere private which we did the subject, the subject of the criticism was resolved. He did the interview, but it just shows you, you know, there's a bit of tension there. Interesting, Duncan, uh, that Manchester United have um, been engaging with uh, new contracts and new players signing. The notion that um, they reserve the right to um, offer and stroke uh, a sign sponsors to individual members of their squad on the basis that the revenue which is paid by said sponsor would be split between the player and the club. Now, this is a kind of almost new version of the old version of image rights, obviously, um, which are paid to a player for appearing in a Manchester United kit or an Adidas kit or whatever um, with regards to uh, promoting the brand, both the clubs and the sponsors. Um, so it's going to be interesting to see which players pop-up individual um, sponsorship opportunities. I've noticed already Marcus Rashford uh, this season promoting Pepsi in an advert for the Premier League being back. I suspect that that was part of his new contract uh, at Manchester United, which he signed in the summer. So um, sponsorship definitely has an influence with regards to how things go. And if you go back to the amazing galactical years um, of Real Madrid in the 2000s, 
you'll probably see that every single one of the Galacticos who signed all had contracts with Adidas because that was the club's sponsor. So there was a, uh, obviously a symbiotic relationship, which was clearly for, for both the club and the players with regards to um, those guys signing. And I'm talking about Zidane, Beckham, um, Figo, uh, McManaman, and Roberto Carlos, <clears throat> who all had contracts with Adidas um, with regards to boot deals, etc., etc. One thing I think is, is important to point out, and, and, and Brett's question is very intriguing for this point. I did speak to a marketing, uh, global marketing executive for one of the big sportswear companies um, recently, and I asked him about you know what happens now in terms of sponsorship of players and boot deals and everything else, and uh, he said to me that the um, idea that shirt sales justify a player's transfer is a thing of the past because the <clears throat> the markup on um, on shirts is very low percentage-wise and the club received most of that and that they're more interested in the players for the boot deal because the boots have a very high percentage profit and if you're a 10-year-old, 15-year-old playing football and you want the, the same boots as your hero, then you want to go out and buy them or your parents buy them or whatever. And that's where they make money. Um, much more money is in the boot deals rather than in the shirt deals with clubs. So, again, um, it's a bit of a contentious issue with regards to how sponsorship influences transfers, but certainly influences the business of football clubs, that's for sure, because of the... Um, as I said, the symbiotic relationship between the sponsor and the club and then therefore the individual players. And clearly there is a benefit to all from that. So we thank Brett for his question, uh, Duncan, and we move on to um, 31 Savage, who um, has so many questions, Duncan, he had to put them into a notes document and, and, and send us a photoshop of them and, and i reckon uh, they're all good questions but we could probably do a fairly sort of legendary quick fire round of answers um on these so um i'm happy if you are to fire a couple or two or three at you i'm happy to weigh in on that as well um i'm going to go for question number two first of all um if alexis sanchez goes to uh, inter milan Will Manchester United have to subsidise his salary, even if he signs permanently for Inter? Um, well, yeah, I'm happy to do this as long as they're not all 31 of them savage questions. But um, let's... <laughs> they are, they're not savage questions, to be fair. They're just 31 savage questions. <laughs> um, well, if he was to move permanently, you could still set up a, a structure in which... Manchester United effects effectively subsidise his um, salary, and this is something that's happened in the past before, with Wayne Rooney going to Everton, um, Emmanuel Adebayor's move from Manchester City to Tottenham Hotspur involved his uh, very high salary at City at the time being subsidised to allow him to go to Tottenham. Um, you, know, you can create various structures and essentially you're either reducing the transfer fee or um, ensuring that, uh, that payments go to the player such that uh, his salary at the new club is um, reduced 
but his um, total income remains as he wants it to be um, when he moves to the new, when he moves to that new club, even if uh, all of the money isn't being paid um, by the new club. Uh, although it could be structured in the way that it comes through the new club's books, having having been sent to them by the previous club um, as part compensation to make the deal happen. I think it's highly likely, in my experience of dealing with these things, that um, Sanchez's contract at Manchester United will be amortised, which, uh, to um, put in a very simple fashion, um, United will have the opportunity to take out a loan at a very low percentage um, interest rate, pay Sanchez's very um, healthy contract off, ensure <clears throat> that loan against Sanchez possibly being injured or moved on or whatever else, and Sanchez receives the money up front, therefore they're not, no longer um, indemnified to pay the contract on a weekly, monthly or yearly basis, which would allow Inter to purchase the player at the agreed cost between the clubs, but also um, that United would not be um, in long-standing debt to Inter with regards to paying his wages, and that's quite a normal transaction uh, in modern football. So I think that's a potential um, outcome for that as well. Um, uh, Mr Savage 31's also asked Duncan that if Real get Christian Eriksen, which we've already discussed, will they still go for Pogba next year? Um, I think that's entirely dependent on Zidane still being at the club next year. Um, certainly you could see them needing to make further changes to the midfield given the, the structure of midfield they have um, with Tony Cruz uh, there, um, Luka Modric that depends um, I think on Neymar uh, Paris Saint-Germain interested in taking Modric as part of the Neymar deal should they um, convince Neymar to go to Madrid and, and that being the option they take up um, so Madrid Midfield is certainly in need of further restructuring going forward, but remember uh, Pogba to Madrid is being driven by Zidane. Zidane has not started his second period at the club well. He's already under pressure. Um, so a, a, a huge question mark, as Paul Pogba um, likes to put it, over Zidane's future at Madrid. Um, and then you also have to factor in things like Dani Sabalas, who um, has already, I think, demonstrated his qualities uh, in his first full game for Arsenal. Um, Zidane did not want Sabalas in the squad in the sense that Sabalas was pushing for regular playing time and Zidane felt he couldn't give him that and uh, was open to selling the player. And Florentino Perez's position was, we do not sell a player of this quality. Um, I'll allow him to go on loan for a season. Uh, to a top club to get him playing time, but there will be no option to buy in that deal because I know how good the player is. And, you know, if Sobalas continues the way he has started at Arsenal and in the fashion that a lot of people expected him to perform at Arsenal, then he is obviously going to be a strong candidate to go back to Madrid in a year's time and be a key player in their midfield next season. And, and in which case, you, you'd have to ask the question of whether someone like Pogba is necessary or not. 
It's very interesting, I think, Duncan, that there seems to be uh, a level of distrust between Florentino Perez and his head coach second time around um, over player recruitment, etc. Almost like a holding pattern has been established for Perez on the basis of what you've said, i.e. if Zidane is still there next season. So the idea that Jabalos, who is highly rated by the president, but not necessarily by the head coach incumbent, um, he would like the opportunity to bring him back to the club in the event that Zidane somehow burns out or walks out like he did last time. So I think that is an interesting um, turn of events with regards to what Paul Pogba's future may hold as well. Um, now, last one, quick fire from our friend 31 Savage is... Um, why is David De Gea not signed his new deal when it was widely reported that it had been agreed? Well, I mean, David De Gea's new deal being widely reported to be a, having been agreed or even signed has been going on for over a year. Um, you could go into Google and, and search for De Gea new contract. You'll find report after report about um, David De Gea uh, either having agreed or being on the point of signing, or I think you'd probably even find some saying he had signed a new contract when he hadn't. He is and has been very close to signing a new deal um, for several weeks now. They have got a lot closer in terms of uh, meeting the, the terms that De Gea wanted to remain, which is to become, uh, to be recognised uh, for his qualities at the club and, and to be put on a salary level um, equivalent to Alexis Sanchez and, and be made the best player at the club. Um, I haven't checked in the last few days if that's progressed, but um, the last check I made, I was told that, yes, it's close. Yes, it looks like um, David will sign that new contract, but no, it's not done yet, so don't report that it is done because there are still things to be discussed. Uh, and still issues to be resolved. So um, the expectation, and this is the, you know, the, these last few weeks have been the first time that I've got it from people close to De Gea that the likelihood was he would sign a new contract. Up until this point, um, it has been no, um, there are issues with the club. It's been, um, at, at one point it was they haven't even offered him a new contract never mind him agreeing to sign a new contract, probably talking over a year ago now it was at that stage um, and then it went to yeah they've made an offer but the offer's nowhere near what is um, required to keep the player and um, their stance has been that they won't uh, improve uh, the offer to what David wants so it looks like the player will leave um, they have improved that offer. Uh, we've gone through a window in which there hasn't been a significant offer to sign De Gea, and there are very few clubs who can actually sign him because of the the cost involved. Even with only one year left in the contract, you're probably looking at 50 million as a transfer fee, and then you have to um, obviously meet those uh, salary terms that De Gea expects from Manchester United to get him to go to a new club. So that hasn't happened, um, increasing the likelihood of him deciding to improve his terms at United and stay on. Um, a question I think you'll want to ask when that deal is done is whether there is a release clause included in the deal. 
um, as uh, we suggested might happen with Paul Pogba, were he to um, agree new terms with Manchester United um, as a way of resolving uh, the issues he has at present, and as actually happened last time De Gea signed a new contract with United and that he had a very specific release clause written into it, allowing him to leave the next during the next summer where an offer of a, of a, of a determined amount to come from Real Madrid um, in that summer only. So um, as, as far as I understand it, the reason it hasn't been signed yet is it hasn't been fully agreed yet. Well, my latest briefing on this, Duncan, um, is that there are still issues remaining regarding two things. One which you've mentioned, which is a release clause, which United, um, given the amount of money they are prepared to pay to here on a new five-year contract, are resisting. They do not wish to enter into a situation whereby their um, goalkeeper can be taken in his prime from another, uh, by another club for a reduced amount or indeed just a set amount. And there's haggling over whether that release clause should be included at all. And indeed, if it is, how much that is going to be set at. Because given that, again, the, the terms of the contract will be five years and the money will be substantial, in excess of £350,000 a week, United argue is, uh, argument is that in co uh, contracts which are similar with other star players in European football, um, then the release clause should be in excess of £100 million. And that De Gea's representatives have said that for a player his age, that is not the case, that he should be allowed to exercise an element of freedom with regards to release clause based on years completed of the contract. So, for instance, let's say hypothetically a release clause is agreed and after one year of the contract, the release clause is 100 million. After two years, it goes down to 80 million. After three years, to 60 or 50. And after four, etc., etc. That's the conversation which is currently being had uh, between representatives of De Gea and Manchester United. The other thing is, is bonuses included. So, if you like, on the flip side of years completed of contract, should the release clause decrease, then De Gea's bonuses increase. It's very, very, again, very um, commonplace for top players to get a net sum uh, loyalty bonus at the end of um, a contract year being completed. Um, sometimes this is able to be tax deductible as well. So another reason why it's built in, because it benefits the player and to a degree the club as well. So those are the things which are holding up the signing, I believe, of De Gea back to Manchester United in terms of a new long-term contract. I'd also like to give a shout-out to Fernando Pinto at Fer Pintos, who also asked the same question um, as our friend 31 Savage on David De Gea. Fernando, we hope we've answered that question for you. Um, we're going to move on to the last in this particular your questions answered. It comes from Sam Consta, which is the same handle on Twitter, at Sam Consta. And Duncan, it's an, it's an interesting one, this one. Um, I'm wondering if he's a Wolves fan or maybe he's a fan of a different club who are uh, not necessarily uh, the favourites of Wolves because he's asked, is Nuno's defensive Stone Age football going to cost him his job at Wolverhampton Wanderers? I don't know about you, but I, I've seen nothing of defensive Stone Age football at Wolves. Uh, yeah, it's an interesting question, given that um, Nuno's two full seasons at Wolves have uh, produced 
what most people would argue is the best um, technical football the championship has ever seen uh, in terms of getting out of the championship and uh, and getting into the Premier League and ahead of that season or when people saw the way he was trying to get his team to play they were arguing that it was impossible to get out of the championship playing that kind of football uh, which he obviously demonstrated wasn't the case and then in his second season he has one of the best starting seasons in the in the Premier League ever um, in terms of uh, comfortably keeping the team in the division and, and qualifying them for Europe uh, and also um, being particularly good against the, the big six opponents and, and delivering a secret series of, uh, of excellent results against them. Um, he certainly likes to play on the counter-attack, uh, that's for sure, and he certainly sets his team up so that they defend well, but uh, I, I wouldn't describe it as defensive football. Uh, in the sense that it's solely focused on defence, and I certainly wouldn't describe it as Stone Age football, and that they they play um, uh, for me an interesting and entertaining and technical game, and you know score goals of real quality as we saw against uh, Manchester United on uh, on Monday night. Um, I don't see his position being in in jeopardy at all. I think they have huge faith in him at Wolverhampton. Um, I think he has again started the season um, well in terms of performances. Uh, they should have won their first game against uh, Leicester City. Um, as we've seen, they, uh, they scored a goal and had it ruled out by VAR. Uh, by VAR um, using the new handball rule and as we discussed on Monday's podcast in detail by incorrectly applying um, the new handball rule as it's actually written as opposed to the, the Premier League's um, PR version of it. So um, that should have been three points against Leicester City uh, and then they come back from a, a goal down to uh, to get a 1-1 draw against Manchester United on Monday night. So. Um, unbeaten start uh, comfortably through their Europa League qualifying games with lots of goals scored. Um, it's uh, it's odd to uh, to be complaining about their football, and I, I, I'd be surprised if Sam Consta is a, a Wolverhampton fan because I've not seen many Wolves fans complaining about uh, their team and their football and their manager and their players um, for quite some time now. Come clean, Sam. We've answered your question. We want to know, are you a Wills fan? And also, if you are, then please continue the debate with us because we'd love to hear why you think this is Stone Age football um, under Nuno Espirito Santo because um, we didn't get the chance, obviously, to discuss it with you during the podcast. Please get in touch with at Transfer Podcast, at Duncan Castles and me at Garbo SJ. And all of you, thank you for your questions for today's podcast. Uh, we do our best to engage with you, obviously, and answer as much as we can. Um, so please continue that debate uh, with us on social media, on Twitter uh, specifically, because that's where we get to um, do the Q&A on a much more personal basis. Um, now, before we go on to the marvellous Donkey Award for this week, Duncan, I believe you have some breaking news, which is extremely important uh, in Scottish football. 
Yeah, this comes from the Evening Telegraph in my uh, my home city of, of Dundee, and they, their headline is that Dundee FC launch investigation after bed frame found on top of pie kiosk, leaving fans baffled. Which is um, an unusual headline in uh, in the sports pages of a newspaper. I think um, I think we can probably answer the bafflement uh, question by. Um, adjusting that very old tersing chant, who slept on the pies? So uh, anyone who knows any information about who slept on the pies up there at Dens Park Dundee, please get in touch uh, at Transfer Podcast, as you know, at Duncan Castles at Garbo SJ, and we will update you uh, on Friday's podcast. Now, what, we, what we want to know is if our good friend Paddy Barkley has installed a bed at Dens Park. He is known to fall asleep on occasion during a game, so perhaps falling asleep on top of the pie shed would be particularly comfortable for Paddy. Um, Paddy, if you're listening, we know you probably are. Let us know. Time for the golden moment of the transfer window week, Donkey Award, and and this week um, um, we're kind of returning to, not returning, but to an issue which I think is very, very important both for football and in politics uh, generally. And that is the Donkey Award for blaming foreigners for everything that's wrong in English football. You may be aware or may not of some comments made uh, by Ian Holloway uh, on a uh, programme on Sky Sports. We don't mind mentioning that. Other sports programmes are available where he blamed Brexit for the handball rule that now has apparently sparked so much controversy when in fact of course it wasn't Brexit or the EU and I'm going to leave Duncan to explain that first nomination. Our old friend as well Sam Allardyce or Samuel Allardiccio as he's known during his time coaching Real Madrid as he suggested famously once that he could do that for his constant suggestions on almost a weekly basis indeed that English coaches are not being given a chance to coach in the Premier League because of the influx, I should say, of that bloody Johnny Foreigner. And the third nomination goes is a more general one to national newspaper editors who, over the years, have run various campaigns to uh, ask for diving to be excluded, mainly citing the influence of foreign players for the scourge on this game. So, um, Duncan, I'm going to I'm going to open the envelope, but you're going to give us the winner, yeah? Uh, the golden envelope has been opened. No one dived as a result, thankfully. Um, <laughs> please, uh, please give us uh, your views on each of the, the um, nominations, and also, of course, most importantly, the golden donkey goes to who? Well, um, Sam Allardyce always a, a strong contender in these these awards, um, always blaming someone else for the fact that he didn't make quite as many millions out of English football as he did um, and uh, was never appointed Real Madrid manager, it's, uh, again to a great shock of uh, the rest of the, the football world. Um, the national newspaper editors, yes, um, I, I have I've seen many anti-diving campaigns um, which always seem to focus on the foreign players rather than the Michael Owens um, and uh, well, the Daniel Sorry. Jameses. 
Indeed. Uh, well, yeah, the Daniel James's first Premier League start, booked for diving in first game and booked for diving in a not very competent fashion. Um, but yes, I, and, and, and once had to do a, a series of reports for a particular national newspaper in which I had to do a diving watch uh, on each game that I reported on as a result of one of these campaigns, which was an absolute delight and, uh, and a real, uh, obviously, a central focus of any match report should be checking to see whether someone had potentially um, deceived the referee by going down too easily, as uh, these people like to say. But I think, um, as our listeners have pointed out, um, Ian Holloway's contribution here is something very special. And, and one listener suggested we should we should even have to retire the Donkey Award after his... <laughs> after his... We're not going to do that as much as we'd like to. No, as much as I certainly would like to have it retired. Um, thank you, Kaiser Duck, for that one. Uh, it is indeed a very special contribution from Ian Holloway. He, um, let's, let, let me just quote him here. I hope we get out Brexit because that's what we all voted for and sort that out because you cannot have someone telling us how to do our own game. Now, um, so many factual errors in that um, couple of sentences uh, but the, the basic one here Ian is the reason the handball rule was changed was because the Premier League and the English authorities had been ignoring the rule on handball had decided off their own back that no goal should be scored um, ha ha the ball having bounced off uh, an attacker's arm to go into the net and applied that uh, unwritten law for a couple of Premier League seasons without telling the general public or the media, and they were found out last season. Um, IFAB weren't happy for it, understandably, because the rules are supposed to be universal. Premier League and the English authorities then petitioned IFAB to have the rule changed, and we now have the monstrosity of a rule that Ian Holloway so um, greatly objected to on that same Sky Sports programme. It has nothing to do with the foreigners telling you how your game in inverted commas, should be run. It's everything to do with uh, the English authorities deciding that they uh, have a better version of the handball rule which should have been applied. So um, a, a distinct lack of understanding of what is actually going on there. And, uh, and I think Ian Holloway definitely deserves a, a very special uh, Donkey Award sent to him uh, uh, as, his, uh, as his reward for that statement on Sky. Well, I'm always sad to see Sam Allardyce beaten to a donkey award, but I, I agree with you, Duncan, on the award to Ollie, as he's um, affectionately known. Um, and I'm sure he'd be very pleased when he receives the donkey award and put on his mantelpiece along with all the other trophies that he's garnered in his career. Um, it's time to draw this particular transfer window to a close. I've already mentioned to you how to continue the debate, but if you like what you hear, you know what's coming next. Get onto iTunes, give us a five-star review. We'll expand the community, and all of this will be even more entertaining and more informative. We'll be back on Friday to fulfil all of your podcast needs, including updates on the news stories we brought you today. And I'm sure there'll be a few other things we need to talk about as well. But for now, we'll see you through the transfer window. Thanks for listening. <laughs>